Hello, friends. Welcome back to Hot Blooded with me, your host, your new buddy, perhaps your old buddy, Kat Jones. Before we get things started, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode last week with King Buzzo of the Melvins. And an even bigger thank you to all the people who shared it, sent me messages on social media, or who subscribed to the Patreon. Uh, This is just a little bedroom project that I'm doing with some of my best friends. So when I say it means the world to me to have your encouragement and your support, uh, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. I know we're all bored and a little lost right now. So I hope that listening to this gives you a reason to smile. Anyway, the guest on the show today is Mr. Dave Windorf, who is the front man and songwriter of a band called Monster Magnet. Monster Magnet is a band from New Jersey that has always kind of been lumped into a genre that we call stoner rock, a genre that I love a lot, but has a lot of goofiness going on that can be a little difficult to take seriously. Um, It's called stoner rock for a couple of reasons. One, because it's slow and heavy and hypnotic enough to completely like zone out to, but Historically, it's also music that feels really good to smoke a joint to because it's positive and fun and feels like a party. And the genre started in the 90s with bands like Sleep and Caius and Fu Manchu in California, but their influences spread like all over the place. And I grew up in California and I loved all of that stuff. And it definitely threw me down a rabbit hole where I eventually fell in love with heavy metal. But these days, the genre of stoner rock has gotten a little corny with like over-the-top weed references and band names and lyrics. And I'll be honest, it's a little tough to not be a little put off when you see that label slapped on something. But the classic bands from that genre still remain extremely wonderful. And Monster Magnet though they sounded a lot like those bands back in the 90s, always felt to me like they had a little bit more of like an earnest quality to them that the other ones didn't. And that is definitely not to say that Dave Windorf didn't write some ridiculous lyrics. Like there are comic book references all over the place. They sing about quote unquote 70s nipples and humping volcanoes and doing so many whippets that you piss yourself while you're listening to Yes and Led Zeppelin records. Or my personal favorite, which is on a song called Third Eye Landslide, where he yells, cashing Satan's checks with my dick in my hand. That's just so funny to me. Anyway, there, it just always seemed like there was like this twinge of melancholy to be found in each record. Like, the wild and crazy silliness was a way for Dave to channel other things that were going on in his life or to create a really fun party to look forward to on a record where the rest of life can be really bleak. And after all, I mean, when you really distill it down to the essentials, it's always seemed to me like that's what rock and roll is for. But in any case, The bulk of Monster Magnet's popularity happened in the 90s and early 2000s, and they've been consistently putting out records ever since then. 
and um, their sincere melancholy quality, it seemed to me, kind of took the stage more as the band got older. Their sound got a little bit more psychedelic. They even remade a couple of their records called Last Patrol and Mastermind in what they called reimaginations. Um, and I was especially taken with the reimagination that they did with the record Last Patrol, which was this beautiful, tripped out, sort of like Doors-esque version of the same album. But they also added a song called Milking the Stars right in the middle of the record, which is this gorgeous, emotional, heartfelt song about waking up next to someone that you know you're probably never going to see again. And I will never forget the first time I heard that song. My friend Liesl and I went to a record store in Portland, Oregon, pretty soon after the record came out in 2014. And both of us bought it on vinyl because we were super into them. And we went back to my apartment and threw one of the copies on the turntable. And when it got to that song, we both had to sit down and sort of have a moment with it. Like it was really funny. We both had the same reaction to it. Like Dave Windorf had just read our memories to us and put them in a way that we had never been able to describe, much less put into poetic terms like that. And it seemed to confirm what I've always known, what was really behind Monster Magnet, which is a dude who feels things just as deeply as the rest of us, despite singing about things like space orgies and driving a tractor on a drug farm. And ever since then, I've really wanted to sit down with him and hear not only his thoughts on love, but also maybe a few stories behind these wild songs of his that seemingly make no sense, which I love. Anyway, I'm glad I finally got the chance in 2020, and I hope that you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Speaking of awesome bands, you are the front man of Monster Magnet. Yes. So something that you and I talked about the other day was sort of that, you know, so many of Monster Magnet's lyrics are goofy and silly, but there are so many songs where I feel like people don't necessarily pay attention to the fact that you have a lot of sincere lyrics and a lot of like really romantic songs too, or, or lamenting, you know, bad relationships and stuff like that. Um, how are you feeling about love these days? Love? Yeah. Oh, love is all you need. Yeah. Yeah. I love love. I love love. (laughs) I, how do you mean? I mean, uh, yeah. How do I feeling about love? You mean romantic love or love of nature? Romantic love. Yeah, I'm always back in it. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to get in the right, hard to sustain for a long time. I think, especially if you're a traveling person or, or whatever, whatever. It's always been hard for me to uh, sustain a working romance. 
because I travel so much and I was like completely involved in music and going into that zone that you do when you make music or make it, you know, write it, produce it, take it outside, travel around the world and come back. But there's still time, you know. I mean, I always figure like once I stop doing all that stuff, I'd probably fall into something that was good. Mm-hmm. Let's hope it still happens. <laughs> have there been a lot of women that have had a lot of struggle with the fact that you are a, a vagabond rock and roller that is always going to hop in the van or on a plane and and leave for a few months? Yeah, it, it's never quite uh, as defined as that, but eventually, yeah, that's what it comes. I, I don't think it's, it's a combination of all the stuff that would take a musician or more like a writer, not as much a musician, but as a writer musician to a point where relationship would get strained. Like how much devotion are you going to, how much time are you going to spend to writing? How much time are you going to spend to uh, traveling? Nothing's ever even for a long amount of time. The relationship is never, your relationship with, with my girlfriends were defined at home by very domestic, beautiful, fun stuff. And then that would be interrupted by, oh, hold on. I have to, you know, create the Frankenstein monster. You know, hold on. I'll be, and then you make an album. And next thing you know, it's two months later and my head comes out of a hole and someone's mad at me. You know? <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> I'm like, one second, I just got to put this crazy noise on this part because it sounds really cool. And Well, how many noises are you going to, how many noises do you need? I was like, I don't know. You never get good at this stuff. You just kind of follow your passion and follow the impulse, the obsession. So I would go into that and probably not pay as much attention to um, the domestic relationship as I, I could have or should have. Yeah. But... You have all this energy, you know, people, I've known people like myself before and you have this energy and you just try to dole it out as honestly as you can towards the subject that needs it. And then when it runs out, it, it runs, there's nothing else. And unfortunately people, I've had people get used to my certain energy level to be high and then it goes down to nothing because I devoted it to something else. Mm-hmm. And it's I ain't got nothing left. It's like I'm tired. You know what do you mean? Why can't we go to lineage of things? And Bible building. I was like, well, I just spent like five hours putting Mellotron sounds on some record, trying to make it sound like you know Mars colliding with Venus. And now I'm tired. It's like I don't want to go to lineage and things. Right. You know, I want to go on tour. <laughs> that makes sense. It's hard. It, it makes sense to me. Um, Eventually, I think it was one of those things where I used to be able to get away with it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But now um, I could talk my way out of it. But now I can't. Like, I'm old enough to know better. It's like, you know something, dude? You either, you know, you either do this all the way or you do that all the way. Just splitting it down the middle. There's only a few lucky people who can really do the best music they can and have a regular relationship. I've never seen it happen. I've seen people compromise. Mm-hmm. You know, but usually it's after the fact and most, most happy bands I see on tour that bring their kids and stuff, they've already done their best stuff. They're not making that many new albums. It's like done, you know, the, that kind of obsession is done. Now they're just basically delivering the stuff that they had done mm-hmm. and they're happy so, and they're happy. So you feel like 
in order to have that inspired spark, you kind of have to be completely devoted to your craft and finding inspiration, like from being able to be free and stuff like that. In the past, I, I, I believe that. Yeah, I did. Or at least that's the way it wore it. That's the way it wound up. Um, I'd hate to think that that is the only way. And I'm convinced that's the only way there's got to be a good way. It's about, I think it's probably about meeting the right person at the right time. Right. I mean, that's totally. a romance. That's a total like love. It would be great. Maybe I should start going out with artists instead of like librarians and stuff. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe they would get it a little bit more. Yeah. They would get, they would understand the uh, disappearing for up in the room for 12 hours at a time. Totally. Or be so happy with the the final product that it's worth it to have you disappear for that long. Well, that's something. never going to happen. <laughs> no. That's never so, going to happen. Of all of your sincere songs that are kind of about failed relationships or uh, or the end of romance or something, what which one do you are you most proud of? There's there's ones that um, it's little songs. I like little songs that every once in a while you get a song or a writer gets a song, at least I do, that didn't, wasn't hard to do, wasn't a big studio production, didn't think about it much. It felt so natural. And I listened back and go, yeah, that's really honest. You know, which is funny to say for a band like Monster Magnet, it's honest, you know, but mm -hmm. really all, all Monster Magnet songs, just for anybody who would bother to know, they're all written about my, emotions and my most of them i mean 99 are dealing with relationships i have with people i'll use mm -hmm. the vernacular of science fiction as metaphors i'll use the vernacular of b culture i'll try to get all my favorite cool stuff from when i was a kid all in one place but that's to service my explanation of myself why i do that i don't know it seems ridiculous that someone would go i'm going to explain my my, my real life passion hopes and dreams and fears through what like action figures or, you know, comic <laughs> books and stuff, but I do. So every once in a while, one comes out so simply and cool that it's great. And it's a song called little bag of gloom. And it's on a record called uh, four way Diablo. And that was when I had had a drug OD about six months before that I got hooked hooked on, um, uh, prescription pain meds, you know, I'm an American. I get addicted to prescription pain meds mm -hmm. and they're anti-anxiety stuff. And it just for sleep, I did them for sleep and it just got, when I tried to get off them, it just made me go crazy. And I, I think for some reason, well, that was it. I was pretty much stripped bare. You know, I had nothing. I had no panache, nothing. I couldn't put a spin on anything. I'm writing lyrics and my, my emotions were like shot. And I wrote this song called Little Bag of Gloom. And it's about a girl. You know, it's me singing to a girl who, uh, who you know, we, we broke up during that because I was so screwed up in the head. Mm -hmm. And that when I hear that one back, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a real person. And it just came out so like raw and real in that moment. Yeah, it just, it's, it seems to me like I didn't fret over it. You know, I wasn't standing around going, that's not the right word. That's not the right word. Cause that's what I usually do. Usually I'll try to find lyrics that are visually evocative. That's more important for me to have visually evocative lyrics than it is to have 
a distinct, obvious meaning. Like if I could be ambiguous, but visually evocative, I prefer that. Because they're they're lyrics and they go with music. They don't have to be a manifesto every time. I like crazy lyrics. I like T-Rex lyrics. I like when, you know, Mark Bowen says, I have never, ever kissed a car before. It's like a bumblebee. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's like, what's that? It's so cool. And that's what I, you know, what I like to do. I like to, to sing about, um, to sing about what I want to say sing about and speak it in a language that I know that perhaps someone who knows me knows, knowing all the while that nobody really knows me. So I know it's going to be a little ambiguous. And I mm-hmm. know with the, and I also realize that with the kind of imagery that we put out and the way I behave on stage and with all the videos we've done, I don't think that people are ever going to really realize just how personal these things are. But they are, and but it doesn't ma- matter to me that they understand it as much as just it's a way for me to express myself in a form of, like, ersatz poetry. It's a system I have of writing that works for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's worked for a long time. Like, I never got bored with it, which is good. You know? It's like, you don't want to get bored, and you don't want to hack stuff out. And it's created this whole universe of Monster Magnet that's so different than the lyrical content of really any other band out there. Yeah, I guess I guess so, because uh, it's so esoteric, you know, and it's mm-hmm. I mean, it's so it's so squirrely. It's like, call the therapist. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> call the therapist. Why is this guy, you know, why is this guy crying over, you know, or why is this guy singing about disappointment. And believe me, I'm not disappointed all the time. I'm not a disappointed guy. Um, Magnet songs, the songs that I write, are equal, I mean, more than equal amount about wish fulfillment and -hmm. embracing stereotypes. I mean, I love to embrace stereotypes. I, like, head me towards Spinal Tap. You know, let me go. I want (laughs) to go run into Spinal Tap. I'll do it. I'll push Stonehenge over. I'll, I'll rap and I'll glory in the absolute ridiculous of the whole thing. And I'll wish just like I was 14 years old that I was, you know, riding that ICBM rocket, like uh, slim Pickens and Dr. Strangelove <laughs> riding on a nuclear missile towards like rock Armageddon or whatever you want to call it, whether it's <laughs> comic books or pulp fiction, Russ Meyer movies, William Burroughs, crazy fantasies, Hunter S Thompson, drug fantasies, Psychedelic posters, black light culture, bong culture, hot rod culture, um, old Hollywood, freak culture, revolutionary culture, all stuffed in one. All these images in my head that make me happy. I'll celebrate all that. But at the same time, try to give a wink to whoever's listening going, look, I, I know better than this. Like, I know this is a suicide trip. I know this is nuts. And I know this is all crammed together. I, maybe I enjoy the smorgasbord of crazy stuff. I hope you enjoy it too. And, and simultaneously, I'm also feeling real feelings and going through things that everybody on oh, earth yeah. goes through. Yeah. I always figured like the best way to do is write a bunch of songs. It wasn't a plan, but I would write a, big, a bunch of songs about basically bravado, you know, as much as like an American kid 
a normal American kid from New Jersey could think like, yeah, I want to drive a muscle car and make it fly, like maybe to Mars, where I could have like an orgy, like in those <laughs> 1960s movies, like in, the, you know, in like a James Bond movie, like that kind of thing. Wow. And all the girls love me. That's pretty sick to me. Yeah. I mean, all the girls would like me because it's all about girls liking you. You know, it's, it's not about domination. It's about maybe... Maybe they would want to have an orgy too. Uh, uh, maybe they would like actually suggest it. So I would go there and then do a couple songs about that and then go, you know something? That really didn't happen. That was all in my mind. Now I'm going to sing this song about a bad Christmas Eve and a tiny little song like, oh, Christmas sucks. And then they get, and then get back on the thing and <laughs> swallow a couple more mushrooms and pretend, you know. And pretend we're going back to outer space. And actually, the more I talk to you about it, the more ridiculously adolescent this whole thing thinks to me. I love it. I mean, at the end of the day, rock and roll kind of permanently exists in that adolescent brain. And I think that we should never, ever let go of that part of ourselves that loves that. it's, it's, It's fun. It's like, I don't know what you call it after you get to a point um, where it's not, and there's, it's humorless. It becomes something that, um, I don't know if I would call it rock and roll. I would call it post, post rock and roll adult, mm-hmm. um, mature rock, which is a horrible two words to put together. I, I can't <laughs> imagine, you know, how about let's do some mature rock. It sounds like, well, I just, I just want to throw up now. All I tried to do my whole life was pretend in my, in my heart of hearts that I could just kind of fool myself into thinking it was perpetually 1973 for the rest of my life. Well, it seems like you did kind of move into, it seems like you did kind of move into a more mature land, even within the monster magnet universe, because you, you put out last patrol in what, like 2012, 2013? Yeah. And then you started doing those reimagining records where you redid the records in a more psychedelic way. And when you redid Last Patrol, you did something that I really loved when you, you did Milking the Stars, a reimagination of Last Patrol. And then you added the song Milking the Stars, which is yeah. a purely heartbroken romantic well, not necessarily heartbroken but i guess melancholy like i have to leave you now kind of yeah, song it, like it's morning totally, after yeah. yeah it's it's totally that yeah i was looking at like uh I, I don't know what comes out of me but i guess it's a lot more there's a lot more um stuff like that in me as i get older or it's easier mm-hmm. for me to express it and uh you know i'm not a complete idiot you know and i'm not on drugs so uh, you know, at one point, I have to meet that kind of stuff. And what better place to meet it than in song in song form? Right. You know, it saves a lot of money on therapy. And uh, True. And uh, you're supposed to do it. Sometimes I worry about um, the people who enjoy Monster Matter Records getting schizoed out, going like, well, you know, are we going to get this bummed out guy? Are we going to get the, you know, <laughs> the leather pants guy? Or like, well, you know, what's going to happen? And I always Who just, says you can't be both? That's what I say. I said, leather pants guy's not going to age well. You know what I mean? In 10 <laughs> years, you're not going to want to see leather pants guy. 
<laughs> enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> yeah, you enjoy it while it lasts. Or, or you try to morph it. And, and, and what I did slowly try to morph it into some kind of situation where I can sit around at a piano at like 70 years old and just be this like really weird old guy singing weird mm-hmm. songs that, that don't fit into the category of quote unquote mature rock, meaning easy listening. Like right. just cause you get old doesn't mean you have to be easy listening. Adult contemporary or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that, those <laughs> are the most horrible words. I, you know, when I hear words like adult <laughs> contemporary, it just makes me want to like, I got creepy crawlies just saying that out loud. Yeah. Well, you know, and you know what it sounds like, you know, and you know how boring it is. Right. It, it's like feel good music for people. And as, and it, the more the more they try to make it feel good, the creepier it makes me feel. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that uh, there was a place somewhere. Europe is the place for this. America isn't, but where you can go and you could do that old uh, that old you know uh, fallen diva thing. You know, you can go out there with a, a bent arm and a bad back and go ah! and sit there <laughs> on, a, on a synthesizer like some mad scientist and have like a hundred people or two hundred people show up and go. Yes, that was art. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> so what was going on in your life when you redid Last Patrol and you decided to add that very sincere song? Um, I was, that actual song was, uh, um, was in my pocket. Anyway, uh, I had written it for Last Patrol and it just didn't fit on the record. So I had that one kind of in my head anyway. And redoing that stuff was just a way for me to uh, to kind of clean my pipes sound-wise and taking chances with different production techniques for the future. Uh, I wanted to figure out how to, how to bring the, some of the uh, overall fidelity or the shine off of some of the big monster records and get it down to more a weirder angle and try to find the right weird angle to see if I could live in a little... An inexpensive, quicker, quickly produced, more honest, less overproduced land of audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to see what I could do in those sounds. And I, and I always have different ideas about uh, how songs should go. I'm sure every songwriter does. Like, this could, I want to try this angle or that, try that, that angle. And I realized I had a good opportunity. I had all the files on that stuff. And I was just, I'm just going to gonna make this weird. You know, I want to see what happens. Some of those songs that were Last Patrol were long songs. And I had a lot of stuff, a lot of different angles to go for. And I, I figured that was the right time to do it. And I was feeling weird. So I was like, no, nah, I'm feeling weird. Let's get weird. I didn't want to write. I wasn't ready to write a new album for some reason. But I was ready to start tinkering to see what I could get out of different sounds not brand new sounds to the universe, but different sounds for me. And mm-hmm. to try to get down into a more uh, do-it-yourself thing rather than big studio productions. And, you know, the only way I could really do that is to have, uh, the only motivation to do it is to, for I am going to release it to people. I mean, I guess I could have done it on my own, but I like the idea that at the end of it, that someone else is going to hear it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I realized that people would go like, what are you doing? You're just remixing. But I was like, no, I'm really not remixing. I'm actually pulling wires out and doing different parts. And, and I wanted to see how it To was. me, it seemed like a brand new record. I mean, it seemed like you get a totally different feeling when you listen to it. Thanks. Yeah. 
That's what I was trying to do. I was just wanted to see if I could get away with it. And uh, I think I kind of did. So anyway, it helped me. I helped my head out a lot. Like for the future, I'll be like, okay, I remember taking chances on this kind of thing. And I remember taking chances on this kind of sound. I remember what this box did. I remember what laying off super quality auto tuning, laying off all that stuff and trying to bring it down to a more manageable level. Cause so, you know, you make a big shiny rock record these days, which I can do. And uh, it, it gets to the point where there's so much time taking, polishing every little nut and bolt on the thing that it doesn't feel natural anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't impress me as much as it, it did. I used to like, you know, be totally anal on some of these records to go from lo-fi to super hi-fi. Uh, I'm going to make the highest five record I possibly can. <clears throat> and I kind of did. And then it was like, well, that was a workout because I had to suspend in my head for a long period of time, the, uh, the actual spirit of it. I had to say this thing was written in a time of tension and emotion and now while I'm shining it, all that tension and emotion is evaporating while I'm in the studio. So some of this later stuff, the reimagining with me to try to get it done quicker. That's really cool. Yeah, it's an experiment. And it actually helped me a lot in my head. Like, I know what I can get away with and what I can't. You know? Do you think you'll do some more of those? Maybe. I mean, I hope, you know. Then I felt guilty about it. I was like, what are you doing messing with old stuff? You're already, you know. But... Yeah, I know I'll get that feeling again and go, hmm, maybe I don't feel it right in a new record now, so let me go back and tear some of the guts out of this old stuff and see what I can come up with. But that's the beauty of music, because music is, it's not just notes and chord progressions. It's and the angle of those notes, the presentation, the light that you show on it. It's like, it's almost like making a movie. You know, mm-hmm. if you, you could get the same movie star, you could get Tom Hanks in there, and have him play a scene, and he would look like Tom Hanks with makeup on and stuff. But then you'd get Tom, Tom Hanks play the same scene, but if, if you made him not wash for three weeks, it would be a totally different scene. you see Tom Hanks tired, and it'd be like, oh my God! So, And that's the way I feel greasy about music. Greasy hair, disheveled. Yeah, greasy <laughs> hair. Like, keep him up for like 48 hours to get him all tired. Uh, <laughs> the music's the same way. You know, you can present it in a different lights and different angle. And, uh, it's amazing, like what one little minor chord could do to a piece and make it sadder, or major chords, or vocal level, or taking the drums out, or putting the drums higher. I mean, all kinds of things. It's fascinating to me. I'm I'm easily amused. Obviously, <laughs> well, you're an artist. That's that's a good thing to be. So take me back to. The 90s, like around the power trip era, what were things like for Monster Magnet back then? Were, were things just totally insane backstage? Yeah, it was great. It was totally insane. Tell me about it. Well, we came from this, you know, we came from indie doing our own singles on our like a cassette label in the late 80s and a, like a long form crazy psychedelic rock band. And within a bunch of years, we were signed to a major and I decided to go like full on rock because it was fun. And it was like kind of a cynical move on my part, but it actually worked. You know, I tried to make a like a kind of a goofy uh, 
record that was uh, embracing all stereotypes of rock, you know, leather pants, sunglasses, the whole bit. You know? And mm-hmm. I expected it to be probably our last major album uh, because our albums weren't exactly doing that well on a major. Uh, so I, I expected it to be our last record on a major. So I was like, why not just go and do whatever you want? Like, you know, what was your fantasy? What was my fantasies when I was a kid? Uh, yeah, putting on leather pants and breathing fire on people and singing about Las Vegas and the failed American dream, Hunter S. Thompson. Cashing Satan's checks with your dick in your hand. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like... My favorite lyric. Fuck yeah, dude. Cashing Satan's checks with my dick in my hand. Like... And like, why, why not? You know, why not get in a muscle car and drive to the moon? Why not? Um, and be as, be as satirical as possible. Cynicism. But not really cynical. I mean, it was all very happily delivered. I just thought it was like a celebration of all that crap. And me, like, you know, called basic truth to power to the record company who said, like, well, maybe you should be more, you know, I remember them saying, maybe it's a little varied and, Maybe it should be a little more focused. And and I was like, well, I'll focus it for you. What do I, I said, what do I have to do to sell a record? I mean, I'm supposed to do what I do. And you guys are supposed to sell it. I'm not supposed to know what radio wants. You're supposed to sign the band according to what they do. And you right. figure out a way to sell it to radio. There's supposed to be a publicist that can figure that out. Right. So I remember I said it to one guy. He was a very nice guy. But he was like, well, maybe it was too varied. And I was like, look. What do I have to do? Put tits and money on a cover to sell a record? Because that's what the hip-hop guys are doing. And he's like, you know, I, I bet you I could do it, like hardly change the music at all. And we could just put sex and would sell it. God damn if it wasn't right. It did. We didn't change the music that much. I mean, Power Trip is a rock record. But the thing that sold that thing was the presentation. And I was like, yeah. And look, all my, you know, all those everything I thought about show business was true. It was like, just, it's just all in the presentation. So I did, I, I went out and I, and that was like an art project. We have to hire girls to be on the cover. I want girls, busty women, you know, with obvious, you know, like sexual overtones out at the fucking wazoo with money in their hands. Like I want money, just like <laughs> hip hop guys. Totally. Yeah. It was like money, what else? Satan. What else? Uh, let's kill the Pope. You know, let's run the Pope down in the car. You know, We're just just for fun. Yeah. Um, what are the, a lot of fire? Sex, fire, cars, outer space, scorpions, money signs, any kind of old psychedelic stuff I could work in there because I think that's a better uh, aesthetic than most uh, '90s uh, aesthetics were try to put some of the old in with a lot of what I thought would be the most stereotypical things possible as a joke. I mean, I couldn't have made a, a more, a more over the top ridiculous cover for the whole thing. And I was shocked and it worked <laughs> like it, I didn't expect it to work. So the next thing you know, the nineties was me in like Las Vegas in like leather cat suits dancing <laughs> with like, you know, dancing with like hip hop girl. That's so cool. It was fantastic. It sounds like you had a lot of fun. Oh my God. It was the most fun I ever had in my life. You know? So at the time, did, did Monster Magnet have groupies and stuff? 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, it wasn't. I've never played it. We've never played it like that. We didn't play it like Motley Crue, you know? It's like, right. It's <laughs> a whole different scene. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. I was very, very conscious of not being a metal band. I wanted to be a rock band. And there's a big difference in, you know what I mean? Rock bands mm-hmm. had innuendo. Rock bands had a nod and a wink. Not rock bands under, understood satire. In my opinion, metal bands understood none of that. Mm-hmm. None of it. I didn't see one metal band that understood any of that or appreciated it. They were all like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like steroids and dude rock and like reading out of some metal thesaurus somewhere. It, it was just no fun at all. It was music by dudes for mainly dudes. Yeah, that's true. At, at that time, there were not as many women in, no, in the crowds no. or behind the scenes as there are now. There wasn't. It was a very, very... Uh, like steroid kind of thing or it, it, it's anyway, it wasn't good. And then the other option was the Motley Crue version of it, which I was never in because I was a nerd. I wasn't, a, I was a nerd kid. I, I lived my fantasies. I live inside my fantasies and my fantasies were never to get people and control them. You, you know, like most nerds, they just want people to like them. So when I did the Monster Man at Big Rock thing, it was just like, well, let's just celebrate hedonism as much and hope that other people can uh, appreciate the joke and the crazy reality of it, too. Because I've, I've learned, like, if you walk it, you know, if you walk it like that, if you talk it like that, you can actually walk it like that. So, yeah, we did have groupies and people like that. But I would they weren't like groupies like a bunch of bimbo standing out in front of a Motley crew. It was just, it was a certain amount of people that just understood that, you know, if you really want to hang loose and you want to have a good time and be understood and still respected at the same time, here's the place. The portal to hell is right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's good hell. It's like right. Disneyland. It, it, you know, it's fun. It's got uh, a lot of forgiveness. There's no... Uh, no bad stuff, no complaints, no, uh, how can I explain it that it wasn't toxic? Cause it wasn't. And I'm proud of it. I'm totally proud of it. I think I understand what you're saying. Like rock and roll, rock and roll is a place where anyone can have a good time regardless of gender or yeah. any, any sort of thing that divides us. And rock and roll can also be a sensitive and sensual place that women feel understood. Whereas the metal dudes at the time were not playing music for women. They were playing music for other dudes. So you were providing a place where it was like a good time to hang out. Yeah. I mean, and I always try to like that. I remember having discussions with different people in my crew. I was like, you know, you know, as, as the thing turned out, like, you know, once you go on TV, MTV was still big back then. Once you start doing things in that area, other people show up, people that don't quite understand it, but they come anyway. And that's mm-hmm. where the danger happens. If people are in touch with the, the fans are in touch with the band or aficionados, people, man and male and female, everybody understands what the thing is. When you start to make friends, they more or less understand the people they're dealing with. So if, 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 relationships are going to start sexual relationships or, or casual sexual relationships are going to start. Everybody's pretty much on the same page. 
when you go on TV and all of a sudden you get that, you get a bunch of people that don't understand. And that's where it gets weird. That's where people get hurt. Because that's when you get some, you know, 17-year-old girl from like Boise, Idaho, like, hi, Walter Magna, how you doing? You know, and mm-hmm. and it's like, dude, whatever you do, you know, don't let the 17-year-old girl from Boise, Idaho totally on the bus. <laughs> Because, you know what I mean? It's just too much. You know, she thinks she knows what she's doing. Everything's cool, but it's never really cool. They don't yeah. get it. They don't get it. As you, I, I, know, I know you probably know. It's like there's a secret, not a secret code, but to understand rock and roll the way that you're explaining it and I'm explaining it, it takes a little while to understand. You have to yeah. be a little bit smarter than you look. Yeah. So I was always really, really careful to keep it that. It was like only the people that under that get it get in. Or who are of age. Well and of yeah, of age would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh yeah, of age. And we get into these situations where things get out of control. I'm gonna shut it down. Like I remember like being mad, like I'm the leader of this band. I write all the songs. I'm the guy that should be going ape shit. Why am I like running around like the, like the, uh, chaperone. But I was really, why am I being band dad right now? Yeah. I didn't want to be band dad. So, uh, but I was. And so we had a lot of crazy times. I mean, it was nuts. It was pretty much, I wanted stereotypes and I got them, you know, I got like in spades. It was crazy. In fact, I kind of locked into the age of, uh, I don't know, some 20 something age where I just remain that same age forever for 25 years. Didn't have any effect on my life whatsoever. I was the exact same person. Sounds like a good time. The girls were the same age. You know what I mean? No matter how old I was, the girl was always like 26 or 27 years old. Mm -hmm. Every time it's crazy. And then like most people in this crazy business, when you do grow up, you grow up like in a year. All of a sudden I was like, whoa, I'm like, you're old or older. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you wake up and you're like, oh God, I can't, I can't be doing these things anymore. <laughs> yeah. It just didn't play, you know, it didn't play. I mean, in, in, in spirit. Yeah. But on the overall, it's like, you, know, you, you got to learn something from this stuff. Uh, totally. But as far as I know, nobody got hurt. Um, and we had crazy, all this crazy stuff. And I learned a lot about just people people's behavior, people's desires, uh, what they want from a stereotypical situation, what they believe. I mean, you know, in Monster Man Land, every night was Saturday night, you know, because we celebrate. It's a rock show. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, ah. So if we do our job right, everyone's in that mood. Um, and they bring it. And we'd have these open parties after, after the show. It was always open. We weren't hiding. We'd have anybody wants to come and come in and that allowed for all these crazy adventures. And we went on great tours with big bands like Marilyn Manson and and Aerosmith and stuff. And all those guys, they partied just like that too. What was it like partying with Steven Tyler? It was great. He was a really nice guy. Totally like, you know, what I saw of him was just a guy who was in a giant rock band that didn't have to be nice to the opening band who was. And uh, would like come in there and go, hey, you know, he's crazy. Uh, what clothes do you think I should wear tonight? You know, it's like Stephen Tyler's <laughs> asking me to like pick out his outfit. So I'd run in the dressing room and go, oh, don't wear the top out. It makes you look like Dr. Seuss. He'd go, oh, shit, I don't want to do that. 
<laughs> and that was where we left it. So I never got to know him as a human. So I know I got to know him in the best possible way, which is on tour with Aerosmith, him, Steven Tyler being the perfect cartoon version of Steven Tyler. It was perfect. I don't even know if I'd want to know the guy more. And that happened a totally. lot with me. It's like, I don't want to know these people any more than this. What about Marilyn Manson? Manson was cool. He was a really smart guy. He was like out of his mind, you know, uh, out of his mind, probably in a good way, in a bad way. Um, it's hard, you know, I, I can't judge. I mean, these days you can't, it, I can't, it's hard to even speak about it because it may hurt somebody or somebody will get the wrong idea. But what I saw, you know, just as a human was a guy who was probably one of the best intuitive front mans I'd ever seen in my life. Really? Amazing. In, in, intuitive. The guy could run a stadium. You know, it's like not many people can do that. He knew how to run a whole crowd of his people. Wow. Run a stadium. And uh, he bought the whole thing. The drugs, the whole thing. He bought it a lot more than I did. You know, he was younger than me. So he went into that world and he was like, yeah, he walked it like he talked it, <laughs> you know, cocaine and like crazy girls. I think mean, people like girls in leather nuns habits and um, just all hanging around. Like whether he was doing it or not, I, don't know, I think he did more drugs than anything else. It was Monster Man's job that I told my guys, it's our job to clean up and make those people happy around them. Can't get to Manson. So you see all those girls over there? Like, go over there and make them happy. Like, you know, let's go out. Let's have a party or whatever, you know. Um, and I would talk to Manson and Twiggy, and Twiggy was just a total sweetheart, you know. Twiggy was cool. They loved rock. They knew what was going on. They were very, very aware, extremely aware of everything that went down in media. Um, they weren't dummies you know, by any stretch of imagination, but in, in, and in the, the craziest way, were so, they got big so fast, you know, that it was a real rock and roll story. And even I know, because basically what I am is, like I said, a nerd. I started as a nerd and an observer. So I observed it all. Like, wow, these guys really are like smashing up um, hotel rooms and causing like, you know, $10,000 worth of damage. I, wow. can't I can't afford to do that, but I wanted to. And those guys let me, like, hey, you want to smash a TV? And I was like, yeah, I do. I want to smash a TV. <laughs> they were great. As long as it's on their bill, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I couldn't afford that. Um, it was a hell of a, yeah, it was a hell of an experience. And like, they were true, true rockers. Uh, I never saw any crime, you know, as far as I know. I didn't see any illegal moves. Um, I didn't see any uh, Me Too stuff. I didn't see any of that stuff. Then again, I wasn't looking for it either. Right. So we would just see each other and like, you know, maybe party every once in a while, but I wasn't into drugs. So I didn't hang out like all night doing that kind of stuff. I went my own way. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a line on, uh, on power trip in the song bummer in the bridge where you say, I need a fistful of medication to keep it in my pants. Was that, was that based, was that like a fictional line or was that based in reality with, with sex addiction or anything? <laughs> no, 
No, no, it wasn't. It was sex, sex addiction. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go to porno places every night. Uh, no, I just thought it was a funny line. That was just one of the stereotypes you're talking about trying to build up. Yeah, I just I just thought it was it was it was basically like the height of hilarity for me to sing a song about. Um, you know, it all started because I I had these experiences in Texas and through the South at these mot. I was telling staying at these Motel Sixes because it was the cheapest hotel you could get, and it just kind of created. I had this whole like. Uh, unveiling of society of, of rock and roll what it meant for getting girls and like how easy it was or what type of girls it would be like really easy to have sex like on, on the first night it mm-hmm. was horrifying you know it was, it was like it was really easy it was like too easy and uh, I was like I uh, this is exactly what I had in mind in my head you know like uh, skinny, uh, dodgy people, you know, dodgy people of questionable like health and, right. uh, and that kind of stuff. This wasn't my fantasy. You know, my fantasy was, you know, basically healthy people and girls that were basically, you know, responsible people that wanted like one night of rock and roll fun. Uh-huh. What I got was people who got regular rock. They had more rock and roll fun than I would ever have in my whole life <laughs> and, had been, and had been doing it for a while. There was a culture, kind of a groupie culture. And it was nuts and it was Southern and it had to do with defying their parents and defying the Bible and just anything, anything with a middle finger to it. Fuck you, I'll do this. Fuck you, I'll do that. And that's when I wrote that song, Bummer. It was like, and I, like, basically a girl said to me, you know, she just wanted her dad, you know? And I was like, you're looking for the one that fucked your mom, but it's not me. Like, I'm not, I'm not this guy. I'm not going to play. I'm like, I can't play this with you. I can't play this game. You need a guy from here or who understands that whole crazy dynamic. Cause this is like way too trailer park for me. You know, it's, I couldn't, de- I didn't know how to deal with it. I was only set up for major fantasies and, you know, where I ran the show. You know? mm-hmm. And basically my endings were happy endings. These were not happy endings. It was like, uh, I can't remember the name of the show that was on, but at the time, every night on that tour was like an episode of Cops. You ever see that show Cops? Yeah, back in the 90s, and, I watched yeah, it all well, the time. Well, that's what, that's what it was. That Every episode was that. Those are the kind of people. Ah! People, you know, <laughs> girls running out of motels in their underwear, screaming, <laughs> spitting in the Bible, you know, <laughs> fucking like Satan tattoos on their back. Uh, and me going like, I can't really tie a knot. And they're like, what, you pussy? You can't tie a knot? Don't you have any handcuffs? <laughs> it was too much. And I was like, oh, my God. So that's where Bummer came from. And That's uh, really interesting. Right. So that, that was my ode to like Motel 6 and you know, just getting down to dirty and like, this is it, you know? And, and to me, just not having a, uh, not having the patience to deal with some of these overwhelmingly massive problems that people had that didn't understand how to deal with it. It was just too much for my brain, you know? Like just, 
at one minute drunk and high out of their minds laughing and like, fuck it, man. We'll just, you know, I'm just, you know, girls like on speed, like really want to have sex and go crazy. And then the next minute they're like crying about dad or something. Like I said, it was like an episode of Cops. You know, I asked for the stereotypes. I asked to go into it. And I found out just what, what my extent could be, which is not nearly, I couldn't live up to the task at all times. I always had a better time in Europe because it was more romantic there. Right. America was just too, too real. Yeah. That's really, that's really interesting. Cause it seems like, you know, when you go looking for a party, the two vastly different types of parties, there's one where everyone's having a good time and there's one where it seems like it's very dark and people are trying to chase down some things they can't solve and looking to you to be the person to solve it. And you're like, I didn't come here to do that. I just came here to put on a good show and have a good time. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought I was off duty. You know, after the show, I thought I was off duty. But nope, you're still on duty. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then for the rest of their lives, they're like, I met Dave Windorf. He, uh, he couldn't solve my problems. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember the girls. I remember like one time I was like, you know, I, I got to remember this forever. There was one of these times where there were two girls and it was in this, I think it was in Florida and we're at this big festival and they're all like, kind of like, well, at the time, I guess it was industrial goth kind of look, you know, pretty mm -hmm. much the uni the uniform, but rock, you know, tattoos and stuff. And they were like, yeah, I'm monster magnet, dude. Come on. You know, and I was like, wow, two girls, this is going to be great. <laughs> and we went in the back of the bus and, you know, the back of the bus, it's like, you know, that's where it's supposed to. And I started talking and goofing around. And they were like, damn, you're like corny. And I was like, what do you mean corny? <laughs> like, you're talking about all this goofy stuff. And I was like, what? No, I'm a badass. Nah, you ain't no bad. You know, they're like, nah, you know, I guess I wasn't negative enough or new metal enough or something. And I was really bummed. I was like, look. You want me to be a bad guy? I'll be a bad guy, goddammit. You know? I can be me just like your dad, like anybody else, you know? I don't know what kind of abuse. I remember it scrolling. I don't know what kind of sick abuse situation you got, but I can live up to it. <laughs> Whatever you want me to be. Yeah, the, what do you want? You know? It was just like, I, I, the whole thing has been like this bizarre, it, it, like, lesson in, in uh, sociology. The whole time. And I, I, well, I wouldn't have it any other way because I learned a lot. Yeah, it sounds you know? like it. And, and, and it was always the best when I treated it like that. When I went into myself and thought too much about myself, that's when I went, really went crazy. You know, like, you know, at any of the time where actually I believed my own shit, that was a lot more dangerous than me going, well, I'm just along for the ride. Right. You know, but to a certain extent, you have to believe your own shit. I mean, that's the, that's the slice of cake I cut off. I'm going to embrace stereotypes. I'm going to make fun of it and I'm going to live it at the same time. Yes. Rock is ugly and stupid, but it's all very glorious as well. And it goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. It's the trash as well as the treasure. It's the whole, like if you're going to go in on real rock, real rock, you got to be prepared to make a fool out of yourself one minute to be the hero the next minute and back and forth and back and forth. And I was totally ready to do it all. And sort of revel in that trash, like to oh yeah to, yeah. to find joy in the trash. You know, because I knew it wasn't going to last. 
And like, I could sense it in the nineties, like this is not going to last. Like I had already figured I was old enough to already realize that it was kind of over that ever since grunge came along, everybody was so self-aware that there would be bands in the future that would not, not be out there doing anything, but probably hiding in their dressing rooms and going, we sucked. You know, mm-hmm. there was, you know, the, the days of high-fiving and saying, yeah, we did it. You know, we're kind of, that was uncool to do. And that was passed all over to hip hop. You know, that spirit, that old Led Zeppelin, crazy decadent spirit. And even MC5 to a certain extent, Stooges and all that stuff that I loved. That spirit just didn't exist in middle class or upper middle class white kids were well-educated and they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. And I remember- They didn't want to have a good time. They didn't want to have that kind of good time. They were brought up in a self-aware world where they thought they were doing, they're very confused, you know? And Kurt Cobain, the biggest grunge star of the world, put out a weird message. You know, it influenced a lot of people and the grunge thing influenced a lot of people. And it was basically, yeah, you're right. Everything kind of sucks. And everything's not kind of worth it. And I'm going to wear a shirt that says loser. And just to prove that I'm right, I will kill myself. I am a loser. We're all losers. Express yourself like this. You're going to cry a little bit. And maybe somebody will hug you. As opposed to the old way, which is fucking do it your all way. And people will love you. Mm-hmm. Big difference. Or bring yourself out of the sadness to have a good time yeah, and well, bring yourself into a better mood with rock and roll. Right. And which is the way I thought of it, because I was like, there's, I mean, this is it. You either do this, take a lot of drugs and fool yourself or get religion. And I wasn't ready for the drugs and religion. So reinvent yourself with rock mm-hmm. and roll and, and try to remain as positive. You know, it's real at the same time, but I could feel that slipping away. Uh, I think that that kind of, uh, that kind of mentality just sort of exists in the Pacific Northwest where that stuff came from. Like I grew up in Northern California, but I lived in Portland, Oregon for six years. And I remember when I first moved there, I was like really cheerful and, and smiley and positive and people right away were like, what's your problem? And I was like, (laughs) I... I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm nice. I, I like to have fun. How are you? And they were just like, you are too peppy. Like you're corny. I don't trust it. I don't like it. I know. And, uh, I, I had to learn very quickly to change the way I talked to change, like, you know, not necessarily be more negative because I'm never going to be that person, but like to maybe not be quite as forthcoming or whatever, because people there just didn't like that. And so when I hear these things about grunge, what was that? You had to curb your enthusiasm. Yes, exactly. And, um, it's funny now that I live in New York, people are way more gruff, but I feel very, I feel a lot more comfortable being, you know, my peppy self here than I did in Portland. But, um, anyway, it's funny hearing these things about, grunge because that's it's like the that mentality is still exactly the same there in many ways yeah i can imagine. it's just like that dominated culture back then for a second it did i mean it was almost and like anything else in culture it becomes uh fashionable to do it so is it real is it is it is it an ad hoc uh uh 
look? Is it a style? I mean, we live in America. Everything that comes out that's real gets absorbed and replayed and faked to everybody else. So, I mean, with this country has never, um, not, not in the great media age, ever been really honest with itself for more than about two seconds, you know. So you get a couple of people that express everybody's feelings and then they get that feeling gets those quote unquote feelings get adopted by the masses who more or less feel them, but usually less. And then they ape it up. So it's all, everything becomes like, ugh, you know, if it's cool, you know, and then all of a sudden it becomes cool to be a drag, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, it's like not all these people can be that bummed out. Um, You know, it's like the new metal thing. I mean, if you looked at the new metal thing, you would think like the entire population of rock were all abused by their parents at the same time. It's like, look, I know it's I know it's bad out there, but, uh, you know, please. You know, you're trying to what you're trying to sell here is like, come on. So you never know. And uh, it gets harder and harder with. With over the years for to figure out like where the real stuff is coming from and, and what's an affect after the mm-hmm. fact affect, but that's okay. I mean, that's a people's business. I mean, I just, for what I do, I just kind of stick in my own universe. To me, I feel like there's no reason why we can't be all those things at once, you know, like well, there, yeah. there are days when I want to cry to Chris Cornell's lyrics. There are days that I want to listen to rap there are days when yeah. i want to listen to songs like yours like nod scene that's like a, all about uh-huh. getting stoned and listening to yes and led zeppelin <laughs> like you know yeah, like yeah. there's no reason why you can't be all those things at once and, and choosing only one mentality to have all the time just seems so forced to me well yeah it seems like a lot of work too like I've got totally it. exhausting uh it's it's like people are overthinking what they are to other people rather than what they really are themselves, which I would imagine most people would be like somewhat like you and I are talking about. Like, I mean, within the space of a couple hours, you can be bummed out or really, really happy and being peppy and all that stuff. It's like, we all know what that is. That's you gathering your emotional antibodies to fight the crushing void of existential angst. That's Which exactly all, what it is. You know what I mean? The whole you nailed world, it. <laughs> yeah, the whole world is nuts. We know it's nuts. We know it's sold to us by a bunch of crazy, greedy people. It's run by politicians that are never really trustworthy. This is not new. So what do you do? You go through your life going, yeah, fuck you. Isn't this great? Look at this little cat. He's cute. I got to go to the woods now. Hey, I got a new bicycle. And trying to like survive it with half a brain till you die. Um, totally. It's such a wacky place, yeah, a wacky existence. And when I see people get caught up in, um, uh, like with what I, what I do with my job, which is making music. And then for a while there, I thought I would have to be part of a scene. It would be nice to be part of a scene, but my, my, this my influences and my passion the biggest things that hit me for when I was a really little kid, which was a long time ago. So it didn't, my passions and what I did didn't seem to fit into any mod, what I thought was modern or current. And I, I probably realized now if I went back in time and had a band back in the time I was passionate about, it probably wouldn't have worked then either. So I'm just fooling myself, but I'm just drawing. I always drew 
musically and aesthetically from a time that made me really, really happy. And then kind of tried to in, uh, include my delusions of grandeur or uh, wish fulfillment stuff from that time into the present day while singing about the reality of my life. It's, uh, I don't know why I just said explain to you because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I love but it. Oh, maybe great. I'm just trying to guard myself from yeah, the all crushing now. Mm-hmm. The ever crushing now. It's like, well, and boy, you know, when you sit down and go, well, fuck that. Let's rock. And somebody doesn't get it. I was like, I got to go home. Like, oh, screw this stuff. Let's rock. And then somebody goes, what does that mean? And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't have time to explain to you. I just, I need to go rock right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, I need to rock. It, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. And it really, it, it gets me off the hook a lot. I mean, it's the reason why I'm not in a mental hospital, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a really good litmus test for people that you spend your time with. If you look at someone and you're like, fuck it, let's rock. And that person says, what do you mean? Maybe that person doesn't belong in your life. No, I know. They might say, I don't, I'm not in the mood right now. I, I can't rock today, maybe tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you mean? I can't handle that. Yeah. Well, to bring it full circle, um, I have one more question for you. And that is, uh, in the song I mentioned a bit ago, Nod Scene, um, you have... One of my favorite Monster Magnet lyrics that is just so funny to me, where you say goofballs and 70s nipples. And I just want you to describe <laughs> to me what is different about a 70s nipple. I was just thinking the nipples that I would see in, in like Playboy, <laughs> Ma- in, like Penthouse magazine. When I said 70s nipples, like, I, I, you know, I don't think that nipples were made different. <laughs> but I think there was a, a kind of nipple that was popular amongst photographers. Totally. <laughs> if you look at those magazines, like I did a lot when I was a little kid, <laughs> they always had these really, really big, giant nipples. I, I think it was just like, there was probably a photographer going, nope, sorry, that areola is just not <laughs> wide enough. You're going to have to, I'm sorry, lady. You're going to have to wait for a different decade. <clears throat> So that's what I was thinking. I was hoping people would get it, you know, like, you know, the whole idea of sex as defined by those magazines, which was the only way to for a lot of adolescent kids to find sex besides the sex they were having, which probably wasn't that much. I mean, when I was a teenager, I didn't have that much sex, you know, I wanted to. Um, So sex to me was and and womanhood was defined by either like mom or my sisters. And that was just nothing. You know, it's mom and my sister. I have nothing to do with anything. Right. And so I never got to see, unless I peeked through at the beach club, you know, trying to peek through, um, was these magazines. And in the magazine, it was just big, giant bushes and giant nipples. And, and like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> this is what women look like. Finally, when I grew up, I realized you know, not all nipples were like that. But for a while... Yeah. So that's why I was saying like goofballs in my, in my head, that was just a great place to be that, that place when I was 13 and I had a stack of purloined penthouse magazines that I found in the woods somewhere. Amazing. You know, cause that's the way porn used to go, you know, like old creeps would go out in the woods and dispose of 
nudie magazines and then kids who played in the woods would find them and then re- why didn't they just throw them in the trash i don't understand I think, <laughs> why do they have to be dramatic about it and take them to the woods that's a really good point i never realized that i i we always just said that it was some sort of like deal that men had of recycling their porn i mean i kind of love that that they're like i'm secretly passing this on to the next generation of boys <laughs> I can't you know, ex- don't tell your mom. Just go to the woods and go it, find go to the woods. pornos. Right. Go, we all know it's true. It's the old tradition. Some old <laughs> creep goes out in the woods and puts a box of magazines out there. But, man, I can't tell you how important that was to me. When you're like a, a 12-year-old kid or 11-year-old kid, and there's you don't see that stuff. I mean, now you do. You can go to the internet and stuff to see it. But back then, it was hard to come by. So you're still in one world where the, the, where kid stuff is really important. But at the same time, the site, just a picture of a naked woman was everything like, okay, this is my future. You know, that, that pull of sex, you know, it's like, I got to see it. And guys are like that. Like they have to see it. You know, I want to see it again. Mm-hmm. So for a while there, a couple of years of my life, the most important things to me were like illegal fireworks pictures of naked women and albums, you know? That sounds like a pretty ideal existence to this day. <laughs> yeah, it was very simple too, because it, it, nobody got hurt. I mean, it all happened inside my mind, you know? And yeah. uh, in the scheme of things, it was very, very tame as compared to, to today. Like, I can't imagine if I grew up today, I wouldn't leave my house. I'd be 500 pounds. I'd be this giant fat mutant just downloading porn all day (laughs) with with those hormones going at 13. Totally. They'd have to end the insecurity that goes along with that. They would have to drag me out of the house. Go jump in the (laughs) cold water. Give me another Malamar. Yeah. Well, I love that song. And whenever I'm feeling that sort of gloom of, existence these days or um lamenting the lack of sort of mojo and music these days which you know there's plenty to be found but if you listen to like the radio or something you wouldn't know that um i listen to that song and it always makes me feel like fuck yeah let's party everything's gonna be awesome thanks we just got to listen to some Yes and Led Zeppelin and <laughs> drink yeah, some beers. You know, <laughs> you know what's crazy is like those albums are so uh, distinctively their own sound, mm-hmm. which is why I always reference albums from that time, not just because I was a kid, but it, it, they're so easy to dis- to e- evoke what I'm talking about because they're so particularly uh, unto themselves, which is what I like about music from the albums from the 70s. I mean, it's like, you can really go on and on about like, you know, yes versus Led Zeppelin or something. And, and, you know, of course, no one ever wins, but. Why compare? They're so great. Both of them. <laughs> they were, they were in their own universe and it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just a style. It wasn't just a, a superficial style or clothing style or just a, a couple different, uh, lyrical differences. It was the way they were produced and everything. Everything sounded different from each each other as opposed to today where everything has a kind of more or less standard sound. So everything sounds better now. The fidelity is better. So there's a more commonality amongst most music. 
same tone, same frequencies. They're going through digital. Um, there's compressors. There's auto tune. It's like everything sounds a little bit better now. And back then, they had to make up for their mistakes by different production techniques, and they would make up their own cockamamie ways to make records that sounded different from everybody else, different studios, different equipment. And I'd always reference that because the people that knew it would realize what I was talking about. So all you had to do was say yes, and people would realize I'm talking about the world of yes or the world of let's up. And it's just, um, I love that stuff. That was a really good spot in music, I think. Um, the big renaissance. Mm-hmm. In music from the like mid sixties and mid seventies. I agree. I love all that stuff so much. A lot of, a lot, of, yeah, a lot. I mean, just everybody's different from each other. Mm-hmm. Like crazy. I mean, in one year, you could go out like in one month and buy, you know, like Alice Cooper, Killer, Sly and the Family Stone, Black Sabbath, Yes, King Crimson. I mean, those bands have nothing to do with each other mm-hmm. at all, and they're all like good, you know. Yeah, and wildly talented and, like, classically trained and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of work. Yeah, they work Yeah, they work, they work hard. Well, I really appreciate you bringing that stuff into the modern world and reminding us what rock and roll yeah. can be. Thanks. <laughs> and um, I think we're running out of time, but thank you so much. I loved all your stories, and this was really, really fun talking to you. It was a pleasure. I hope I didn't overblab too much. Not at all. No, not at all. It's wonderful. I'm all cooped up with Corona. I'm ready to talk. <laughs> Same. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's the best time for me to be doing this podcast, is yeah. we, we all have time. So, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of Hot-Blooded was hosted, written, and produced by me, Kat Jones. It was edited by Evan Dulaney, and the theme song was written by Jordan Olds. The logo was drawn by Corey Largent, who also goes by Insane Clam Pasta on Instagram. It's a very funny account full of food and music puns, and you should absolutely check it out. Additional graphics were made by Jonathan Amaya. Special thanks to John Freeman. I also want to give a special shout out to people who subscribe to the Lover tier on Patreon. The band Drug Salad, which is a very appropriate band name for a Monster Magnet episode. And Janet Talenko Davis, who is special not only because of her patronage, but also because she birthed and raised one of my favorite people in this whole world, Cody Davis. And if Cody is that awesome, chances are it's because he's got a damn good mom. Anyway, I love you all a lot. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week.